Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. In, in the contemporary Western world, what's very important to us is the facts, the real story, yeah. what really happened. Yeah. And if it's not based in that, it has no value. That is not how people see their mythic history. Mythic history is not about facts. It's about the fact that we're human. It's about the fact that all human beings are meaning-making creatures. And our work as spiritual people is to make meaning of this business we call life. Our sacred mythology is how we make meaning out of the randomness that is a human experience. It's not unrelated to facts, but it doesn't rely on facts, right? It, it, it grows out of, it has to grow out of some frame of reference, right? There, there has to have been some kind of big water event, right, for everyone in the ancient Near East to have a flood story, right? But the flood story isn't about a flood, Ultimately, what's the flood narrative about? It's about terrible things happen, right? And destruction happens, and it seems random. Well, is it random? So, of course, the Israelite narrative is, of course, it's not random. There's a loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, um, you know, wonderful, beneficent God who controls everything. And it's about exploring our relationship to that force. That's what right, these texts are ultimately about. In the West, we have devalued myth, poetry. We've devalued any kind of framing of our search for meaning as not being of ultimate value. Like, it's maybe a little bit interesting, but who really cares? If it didn't happen... Who really cares? That's not a question that would have been asked in the ancient world. Did this really happen? That's not even a... I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but that that was not the concern. The concern is, what, what what is our understanding of Lech Lecha? What is our understanding of the journey out from what's familiar, right, that Avraham gets that that call into the unknown into courage into trust into right um into relationship with something you can't know right now what it's ultimately about and those are those are classic stories of think of your greek mythology right you know, they're they're classics for a reason because because the issues that brought them into being will never disappear as long as there are human societies to ask questions, right? So what I say to my bar and bat mitzvah students is these questions are eternal questions. This is just the Jewish people's way of talking about them, right? What we're going to look at here, the relationship to food and our relationship to consumption, which is this week's you know, reading for us, every human society has taboos around eating, Right? We have this crazy business called kashrut, and we're the only ones that has kashrut. But that's because we're the only ones who uses that crazy word, kasher. But every single, every single society has taboos around eating, right? So we might say we eat meat, that's fine, but would you eat a dog or a kitten? Most of us in this room would throw up if we found out the meat in our mouths was a golden retriever. Right? Why? What's the difference between a golden retriever and a lamb? I love lamb. Mm-hmm. You know, and I eat lamb. I mean, not, not happily anymore, but right, it's hard, harder and harder. But what's that about? That we wouldn't eat a dog, but we would eat a baby sheep? What's, what that's about is taboos around food. They make no logical sense, but they are powerful. So as long as you have human civilizations, you're going to have relationships to Food, taboo, what's okay, what's not, what we eat, what's disgusting to us to think about. You know, my grandparents ate brain. Yeah. I, I can't, tongue, 
I walked into my grandmother's kitchen one time, right? And there's this huge thing on top of the fridge, but it was dark and I couldn't quite tell. And then she turned on the lights and it was like something out of a horror movie. It was a cow tongue on a platter. It's like, right now I eat tongue, but, but I wouldn't eat brain. Right? And so those visceral reactions are, are, as long as there have been human beings and as long as there will be human beings, there's going to be that visceral reaction to what we eat and what we don't eat. So that's one exa- today's example. One example, this is the Jewish way of talking about that. And for us, that has meaning too. Not just, ew, I don't eat that because it's not my culture. But for us, there's an ethical and moral implication, or there were for the ancient Israelites. We're going to talk today about what, what we think about that um, and what's changed. But back then, the, their relationship to what they ate and what they didn't eat was a moral and ethical issue for them. Did it happen? <laughs> did, did they really not eat this ever? You know, Okay less of an issue for me that's not the reason we talk about it we talk about it because we are meaning making creatures Torah tells us our tradition has always felt that we need to explore our relationship to everything in our daily lives as spiritual beings having a human experience so a human experience is eating but if I'm a spiritual being having that human experience then that means there's some I'm bounded right by what it's right and wrong according to my spiritual tradition, to do around that appetite for food. That, that's what's important to me, is that we're still having that conversation. What does ethic, ethical and moral behavior for me as a spiritual being around my appetite for food, which is a good thing, the appetite's a good thing, fulfilling it is a good thing, within reason, within limits. So the conversation for us today is, so what would that call for me as a progressive Jew? If I'm true to my spiritual, you know, kind of system of values, what would that call forth for me around consumption of food? And, and I like to extend the conversation, you know, with Barnaby and Mitzvah kids, past food, consumption in general, because I believe that's what this Torah portion is about. It's about consumption. Um, that's not an irrelevant conversation today. Has it changed? Yes. Right? Are we focused on exactly these categories? Not so much. But the idea that there needs to be some kind of exploration for us as a people around our ethics and morals as regards to consumption, that is a more poignant and powerful and important question than ever before. So did that, did that make any mm-hmm. sense of the answer? Yeah. So when you can turn on this podcast next year. I know. Yeah. 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 Please, God, this is recorded. Um, right. So, um, and just, just to close that conversation, because we did just have Pesach, and it is, it is a big question for progressive Jews, um, is that how we came to be the people of Israel in the land of Israel is what's up for question. Not the meaning that we are a people, right, who located ourselves in the ancient land of Egypt. That's not up for question, right? What the debate is about how that happened, mm-hmm. right? So the, the mythology that we get is we came from Egypt and conquered the promised land. That's not what happened. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the part that's up for debate. Were we even in Egypt? So this is, right. this is, is there evidence of Semitic people in Egypt? Yes. Were they entire? Were they the entire slave population of Egypt? Absolutely not. We have pictorial evidence of Semitic peoples in Egypt, but we have Egyptians in Israel. Like we have, there's a lot of people moving around in the ancient Near East. A lot, depending on what. Why do people move around? Food. Food. So famine, right? All that stuff. We know that Israelites from southern Israel would push from Canaan. Canaanites from southern Canaan would come down to northern Egypt when there was a famine in Canaan. Why? Why would they go to Egypt? There's food. Why is there food in Egypt? The Nile. Nile. So we know this. So so that's, there's facts in that Canaanites would have gone to Egypt during a time of famine in Canaan because the Nile was still, wasn't fed by rain the same way, from the same region. And so there was food there, right? So we know that now... Was it this particular group that, I don't know. (laughs) The entire slave population of Egypt did not stand up and walk out one day. We know that. 
because the entire system of Egypt would have collapsed. It cannot have happened, right? If we were the slaves and all the slaves left, Egypt would not have remained an empire. So that did not happen. But that's not the meaning of that story for us. The meaning is that this is what happened. That's how we got rid. The meaning is we do not take our freedom for granted. And we do not ever otherwise and say, if you would just do things differently, you wouldn't be so poor. Because what we say is, you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That's the meaning of that story. Not to, to how many Semites did it actually happen. Now, did, that, did a, something happen to a group of Semites who came down for a famine? And they have a terrible experience and somehow get out from that oppression and have an experience in the wilderness? Sure. Right? And then become influential and then start pushing into Canaan at the edges and taking over power centers? Yeah. Right? So it's not that it's unrelated to fact. It's that our mythic history doesn't depend on the facts being what they are as they're given to us in the book of Exodus. And that answer will not satisfy a lot of people because we're just too formed by the West. We're just too logical, linear, re- age of reason. We're still dealing with that, <laughs> the age of reason, the death of you know mystery. But once upon a time, mystery, capital M, was what was most informative and important and reliable and interesting to people. We, we, we've, lo- we've swung right completely the other way, and we're still trying to we're correcting for that. Like that's why we're going to have people at meditation after this, right? You know, we're starting we're starting to correct um, for that. Um, but but that answer will upset. The answer I just gave you will upset a lot of people. So I don't think just because you can explain it, it's going <laughs> to yeah. like go away. They in order for them to relate to it, they want it to be factually true. Or or it means and believe me, I have this fight with very close <laughs> friends all the time. So you're just going to have to get over it. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> If you just get over it, like whatever, or don't get over it and believe that it's all true. That okay? Just don't look at any archaeology books because there's no evidence for a conquest. So you know, just don't look at the facts and go ahead and believe the story. That, that's fine with me. I don't care. Mm-hmm. So if it was a partial group, what, what then does that meaning take on? If it, were, if it was a small group that left Egypt, or it was, uh, it wasn't everybody, and but we were all at Sinai, like the Jewish people were all. What does so that mean? even if you believe the version that we get in the Haggadah, mm-hmm. it it can't mean a, whoever had that Exodus experience was at Sinai. Right. All means them. The Torah adds all of you who are here today mm-hmm. and all of you who are not here today. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. The rabbis interpret that to mean anyone who was ever going to be Jewish was at Sinai. Biblically, there's no understanding of there being a soul apart from the body. Okay. There's no such thing. But for the rabbis, there was. Mm-hmm. So they read their worldview back into that text saying it meant the soul's of all the people who would ever be Jewish were there. It gives it a mythic context, right? So the rabbis are perfectly fine with myth. (laughs) Because to say all y'all, right? Atem kulchem hayom, all y'all are here, means... The souls of the so then Sinai becomes a mythic moment, not a moment mm-hmm. in history, not a Thursday afternoon at four twenty-five, mm-hmm. right? All right. Where are we? Shmini. Shmini. Leviticus ten sixteen. Leviticus ten sixteen. Yes. So uh, we have the Mishkan. We have had the unfortunate. Incident uh, at the beginning of this parsha of Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aharon, who uh, bring Esh Zara, a strange fire, and um, and a fire goes forth before God and consumes them. So they, so now Elazar and Itamar are the two sons that are left. They are now 
promoted, right, to being uh, Aaron's number twos. All right, so let's look at 16. Then Moses inquired about the vote of purification offering, and it had already been burned. He was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, Aaron's remaining sons, and said, Why did you not eat the purification offering in the sacred area? For it is most holy, and he has given it to you to remove the guilt of the community and to make expiation for them before the Lord. Since its blood has not brought, it was not brought inside the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron spoke to Moses, See, this day they brought their purification offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. Had I eaten purification offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard this, he approved, saying to them, Speak to the Israelite people thus. These are the creatures that you may eat from among all the land animals. Any animal that has true hoofs with clefts through the hoofs and that chews the cud, such you may eat. The following, however, of those that either chew the cud or have true hooves, you shall not eat. The camel, although it chews the cud, it has no true hooves. It is impure for you. The daman, although it chews the cud, it has no true hoofs, and it is impure for you. The hare, although it chews the cud, it has no true hoofs, it is impure for you. And the swine, although it has true hoofs with the hoofs cleft through, it does not chew the cud, it is impure to you. You shall not eat of their flesh or touch their carcasses, they are impure for you. Okay. We have this bizarre incident, right? We get this... Moshe, Moshe's talking to Aaron and his remaining sons in verse 12 and talking about the meal offering and where they're supposed to eat it. They have to eat it in the sacred precinct, right? And how they have to do the breast of elevation, offering the tenufa, um, the heave offering, right? I love that. The heave offering. Um, and so they're, they're going through all of these and then there's this bizarre episode where Moshe starts to ask about the goat of purgation. And he comes to them, to Elzar and Itamar, and says, you know, what's up? It's been burned and you didn't eat it in the sacred area. Because it's kadosh, you have to eat it in a place that's kadosh. You, and you knew that. So why didn't you do it? And then Aaron speaks for them. Aaron comes forward and says, they brought their purgation offering and their burnt offering before God, and such things have befallen me. What's befallen him? His other two sons. His other two sons having died. Well, now these two sons are doing the wrong thing also. <laughs> had, I eaten purg- had, I, had I eaten purgation offering today, would God have approved? And what does Moses say? Moses changes his mind. So what just happened? Like it's this this bizarre interlude. Um, We can assume that we're missing something here. There's a larger narrative and we're only getting the remnants that, that, that the early Israelites listening to this either would have known Right, they knew the whole story, and we're, they're getting a reminder of remember that thing that happened with you know. Um, perhaps this is an Aaronid insertion, right? The folks who follow Aaron saying, you know, that Moshe doesn't always get it right. <clears throat> Let's not forget about the purgation mm. business mm. with the goats. Let's not forget about that, <laughs> right? So we're not sure, but. But clearly, Moshe is suggesting, as Bert said, that Eleazar and Itamar are messing up. And we just had that happen with Nadav and Avihu, if you accept that it wasn't a good thing that they got consumed. <laughs> Some people want to say they wanted to be close to God and they got their wish. So that's, and that, 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 that they were, in fact, taken in by the divine. And so, so, so if we're not reading it that way, if we're reading it as a bad thing, then... They screwed up, and look what happened. And Moshe is now coming to Eleazar and Itamar going, and now you two, really? So what, but Moshe's wrong. It's, our story seems to tell us 
Moshe's wrong about what they're doing. So what's up with Moshe? What's up with Moshe here? Well, he's shown compassion. Maybe. Well, there's a couple things. First of all, it sounded to me at first like Aaron is just saying, should this really be a capital offense? (laughs) You know, what if it was me? You want me? But the second thing is, Moses didn't take action last time. God did. Moses so let's is reconstructing let's, God. Here. Let's let's fill that out. Moshe didn't take action last time. What action did not Moshe take? Not great English, but <laughs> what what action didn't Moshe take? Well, he 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 wasn't the one who uh, sent out the flames to kill the kids, <laughs> right? Um, I don't remember where Moshe. Aaron didn't speak. I know that. Right? By Edom, Maharon, Aaron was silent. Who was in charge of instructing Nadav and Avihu? It was Moses. He was getting the word from God. So possibly it's Moshe. This is one of the possibilities we talked about when we studied this last year. It's possible that Nadav and Avihu screwed up because Moshe didn't instruct them. Was it Moses? Correctly. Aaron wouldn't have instructed his kids. He was the high well, priest. Well, but Mo, but Aaron's not getting the word from God. No, Moshe Moses. is. So, okay, let's say it is Aaron's job to teach his sons. Possibly, Moshe gets it that he didn't teach Aaron well enough to teach his sons. And or Moshe fell down on the job of just kind of being around the tabernacle, like in kind of helping these guys who are brand new young priests. There's never been priests before, right? They don't, nobody knows what they're doing. Where's Moshe in all that? So it's, if we read it that way, what's happening here? Moshe's overcompensating. Mm-hmm. He, now he's on every detail. Now he's watching everything they do, Right. You wearing a striped shirt to do that? <laughs> Didn't we talk about plaid? Didn't we? Like, wait, so that he's on, well, he's well, he's is, overcompensating, or he's guilty. He feels guilty that he wasn't doing enough of a supervisory job, and that's how his two nephews got gone, but got obliterated. Not, he's also supplanting God, at least as I read. Aaron says, "Would the Lord have approved?" And when Moses heard this, he approved. So he's taking over the position of being the one who approved. No, no. no he, Aaron is, in, an, in another part mm-hmm. of the reading of this, uh-huh. Aaron is saying to Moses, halachically, mm-hmm. I can't eat it in here. Would God have approved if I ate it? Uh-huh. Oh, okay. And oh. we don't know the story, but Moses <laughs> clearly realizes, no, God would not have approved of Aaron eating it. Or Elazar and Itamar eating it. One possibility is what just happened. We said what just happened. Nadav and Avihu. What happened to them? They got gone. Well, not got, They got dead. Right. Right. So what happens when you have a corpse? It is the highest form of impurity you can communicate. Is a corpse. So if they died in the Mishkan, the Mishkan technically is impure. And if you have to eat the sacrifice in a pure place, well, you can't eat it there. how can they eat it in the Mishkan? Right. So that's one possibility. Mm-hmm. Is that Aaron is saying, so if I had eaten the purgation offering, God would have approved? And we're missing a few sentences. <laughs> since since not having an eaten, we're here and our corpses are and that's impure. And how could I eat it here? <laughs> right? We're missing those intervening parenthetical <laughs> sentences, obviously. Um, but that's and so that's one possibility. And then Moses, when Moses hears that, he's like, "Oh, duh! Like, well, of course you couldn't eat it here, mm-hmm. right. right?" And so he's very anxious to now be all over everything, possibly out of a sense of guilt and responsibility and shame, and messes that up too, right? Jumps, leaps to the wrong conclusion. Um, and Aaron, for his part, I have to say, is pretty. Civil, right? I mean, we we get you know a question mark here, but 
you could put a question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point at the end of it if you wanted to, right? You know, a little more pointed. But Aaron's pretty respectful. Given that his two sons just got killed mm-hmm. and now Moses is charging his remaining sons with messing it up, mm-hmm. I'd have killed him. Right? Like, Eric should have come flying across the Mishkan, right? And, and grabbed Moshe by the throat and said, I have had it with you, brother. Right? I'm the one that was in the family the whole time. You, Mr. Prince of Egypt, come marching in here. Like, shut up! Right? But he doesn't. Aaron has this amazing, I think, amazing self control. When I'm thinking about Mikey totally off the subject, <laughs> It would have to be purified. Start over. It would probably it would have to be purified. Yes. Yes. Can you talk about the transition here? I mean, all of a sudden, it's like we make a complete turn. We're talking about burned up and eating offerings, and then all of a sudden, it's what you can and what you can't eat. So I think they're not unrelated, right? We're talking about what you do with offerings, how you do it correctly. Mm-hmm. That that ritual law around how they ate these animals now gets extended. Right, but you, you to move all y'all. every day. To everyday life in your own home. To now, right, so there's how you eat offerings in the Mishkan, mm-hmm. and then there's, okay, now we're going to keep talking about the topic of what we can eat and what we can't. Which and w- but were these from the same source? The scholars say these two things. I do not know. Okay. I do not have in front of me the, you know, the sourcing. Right. We don't, we don't it's know it's no. doubtful to me, that just by the style. It feels, but it feels different. It feels different, but I, feels, I could be wrong. It's like not only that, but I'll show you what you can do. Can you <laughs> right. stuff right. on that? Okay, here's the real reason. Yeah. Well, that's he right. said he was trying to get doing everything. Maybe that's part of it. He's trying to get, you know, super specific. Um, well. And, and this is God intervening here. Like this isn't this isn't Moses saying, "Okay, now we're going to talk about kashrut." Right? God speaks to Moshe and Aaron. He t- so you can imagine there's a squabble over eating and wh- how you're supposed to eat. And then yes, right? No, you didn't. Right? And so then God comes in and goes, "All right, listen up. Speak to the Israelite people and tell them this is what they can eat. This is what they- it's enough of y'all. Let's get to." Let's get to, let's move this along to, like, you know, what the people need to know about the correct ways to eat and not eat. No ambiguity. Is this the first time that God has spoken to Aaron? No, because no, uh, we have it in, uh, in Egypt. Right. God speaks to Moshe and Aaron. Um, Does God ever speak to Aaron alone? alone? Or is it mostly Moshe and Aaron? I don't think so. Okay. Not that I can recall. But that doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> not or not true. All right. So God speaks to Moshe and Aaron saying, speak to the Israelite people and say, these are the creatures that you may eat from among all the land animals. Any animal that has true hooves with clefts through the hooves and that chews the cud, such you may eat. Right? So the hoof has to be truly cloven. And they have to chew their cud. They have to be ruminants. The following, following, however, of those that chew the cud or have true hooves, you shall not eat. So just in case we weren't clear, <laughs> if it chews its cud but does not have a truly split hoof like the camel, you may not eat it. These are all things you can see. You don't have to remember the list. Well, So that's one of the reasons that some people believe this is... Well, you do have to remember. You have to remember the list of which you species. You have to remember what. The- e- even further than that, what if you don't know the species? Forget remembering the species. Uh-huh. What if I've never seen this animal before? How do I know if it's kosher? Well, because- Unless well, I'm a taxonomist, because- how do I know? Right. So it has to be. Some people Choose want to suggest it has to be a sign that everyone can see. Right. On any animal they encounter, mm-hmm. so that they know that it's kosher or not kosher. So it had to be a standard that you could very easily look at an animal you've never seen before mm-hmm. and know whether it was on the list, on the approved list or the trafe list, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
the daemon chews its cud, has no true hooves. The hare chews a cud, no true hooves. Swine, although it has true hooves, and it's impure for you. All right, so notice no particular bold highlighted print around the word swine. Notice? Right? See how things happen like that take on meaning that isn't originally there. There's an emphasis on no pork that is not biblical. It just mentioned the swine. Why are we not freaking out about the possibility of somebody eating camel? Camel bacon. Like <laughs> nobody worries about it, but everybody's all over pork. Imagine going to a restaurant and does, does this have any camel in it? <laughs> does this have Damon in it? Because I, I can't eat Damon. Right? I don't I don't know. Look at your notes. Uh, if this identification is correct, then this creature is a member of the Hyrax family. So did that clarify for you, Jonna? It's a member of the Hyrax family, native to Africa. All right. Uh, okay, so you shall not eat of their flesh nor touch their carcasses. They are, what is the word used here? Tame. Tame. So they are Tame. What is the opposite of Tame. Uh-huh. So let's just watch our terminology. So the all these things that we just said who that chew their cud but don't have a true hoof, blah 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 blah, they are tame. And the the opposite of tame we said is Tahor. Tahor. Is it a tahor tet for Tahor? Tahor, so the Tahor Tet. I can't spell in English. <laughs> Bella, I can't remember. Tahor Tarita? Tahor? Is it a Tahor Tet? Tav? It is impure. You can't eat it and you can't touch it. It is tame. It is impure. All right. That means like uh, a pigskin purse you couldn't have. Correct. It didn't. Doesn't well, have to it, do with... you can't touch their carcass. I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know what rabbinic law did about um, light skin right. later okay. once it's been transformed into something else. Mm. I don't know. I should know that, but I don't. There are some things. Same injunctions of halal for. They're, they're, they are very similar. The, so, when I was in Egypt, I wanted to taste camel meat. Yeah. The, the, the government person who was taking me around said, no, 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 that's just for poor people. <laughs> right, right. So why, because every society has what you eat and what you don't eat. Like white rice was the highest expensive, best rice that you only, only rich people ate. Right, because you took off the hull, and that was a much more complicated process. So that's how we all got exposed to the idea that you eat white rice, because you wouldn't eat brown rice. That's the rice of the peasants, right? Well, what's the healthy one? Brown. All right, uh, nine. These you may eat of all that live in water. Anything in water, whether in the seas or in the streams, that has fins and scales, these you may eat. But anything in the seas or in the streams that has no fins and scales, among all the swarming things of the water and among all the other living creatures that are in the water, they are an abomination for you, and an abomination for you they shall remain. You shall not eat of their flesh, and you shall abominate their carcasses. Everything in water that has no fins and scales shall be be an abomination to you. All right. So water... Fins and scales. And if it doesn't have fins and scales, it is shekets. Right? It is shekets to you. And shekets is abomination. And I love the verb form. 
you shall abominate their carcasses. <laughs> like, it is right there in the translation. Usually it is my word. But the following you shall abominate among the birds, right? So tishaktu, you shall abominate. So clearly it's not just stative, right? It's there's an active form mm-hmm. of it as well. So so where we see shekets, it comes actually from uh, Akkadian, shakatu. Um, to distance, to dislike, to, you know, it's like distasteful, um, and it gets strengthened in uh, Israelite religious parlance to abomination. So, what's the difference between sheket and tame? Ha ha. I'm a bit confused. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> the Israelites are uh, are uh, wandering for. Years. <laughs> Not yet, but they will. They, will be. they don't know yet. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, you eat shrimp or lobster or whatever else. Um, there, there's clearly a, a problem in terms of time and when this is written because they're wandering in the desert, if you will. And but how long were they supposed to be in the desert? Ten days, whatever. A week. They're getting the instruction for when they get to the land of Israel, where there's a whole bunch of coastal property. They're they're, they're getting this instruction with the intention of being there next week. When they get there, they got to know when they go fishing in a lot, they have to know what they can eat and what they can't eat. I mean, that's how you can defend the text as we have it. Of course, these are written at lots of different times. These are written, you know, after this has long been the custom, right, in the land of Israel. But but from the side of the actual text's narrative, the intention is they're only there for a week. And then they're going to be there in Israel, and they've got to they know what they can eat and what they can't. Turns out it, it's going to be a little longer than, than they anticipated. All right. So what's the difference between Sheketz and... So I was waiting for okay. one more okay. term. Okay. All right. So let's go. Let's go on. The following you shall abominate among the birds. <laughs> they shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, and the black vulture, the kite, falcons of every variety, all varieties of raven, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, hawks of every variety, the little owl, the cormorant, and the great owl, the white owl, the pelican, and the bustard. The stork, herons of every variety, the hoopoe, and the bat. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so so we've gone from the physical characteristics of <coughs> land animals and sea animals. It's all based on physical attributes. What What is this list about? It's just naming. Because... What do they have in common? The scavengers. They are scavengers. So now we've moved from physical characteristics to behavioral characteristics. There is no difference in ancient Israel. Right? We love to jump on, ooh, they are vultures. They eat other things. We don't want to eat something that eats other things. Right? We love to jump on that one. But it's no different in the category of lists than fins and scales, or chewing the cut and having a split hoof, right? There's no meaningful distinction made in Torah. The rabbis jump all over it. They love that it shifts to behavioral. Because that makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Don't eat stuff that eats dead stuff. We do that. <laughs> if you eat this stuff. Right, but what I'm saying is, it makes a little more sense to say, we don't if we're going to talk about being pure and like and and spiritual values around eating, it makes a little bit of sense to say, let's not eat stuff that eats other dead stuff. Okay, you you could kind of because we're going to eat that that ate a bunch of other roadkill. Ew, like you, you could kind of get that. You can't get fins and scales. 
Right. There's nothing to get. It's a random mm. rule, right? So that, that's all I'm saying. The rabbis love that now this is related to behavior because there's something you can do with that, right? <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, the good news is there's stuff we're going to be able to eat. All right, so let's go to 20. <laughs> all winged swarming things that walk on fours shall be an abomination to you. But these you may eat among all the winged swarming things that walk on fours. All that have above their feet jointed legs to leap with on, on the ground. Of these you may eat the following. Locusts of every variety, all varieties of bald locust, crickets of every variety, and all varieties of grasshopper. But all other winged swarming things that have four legs shall be an abomination to you. So the good news is we can eat the bald locust. All varieties of bald locust are kosher. As are crickets and grasshoppers. So we're good, right? So we got lots of options here for the flying winged swarming things, right? So... Um, because you might not know where the joint in the leg is exactly. So we get, we get a list for us of, of those, right? So again, seems pretty random, right? Like in terms of there, there's not really a behavioral distinction. There's not anything that seems to suggest value. It's, it's a random rule. Okay, go on 24. And the following shall make you impure. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be impure until evening, and whoever carries the carcasses of any of them shall wash his clothes and be impure until evening. Every animal that has true hooves, but without clefts through the hooves, or that does not chew the cud, they are impure for you. Whoever touches them shall be impure. Also, all animals that walk on paws. Among those that walk on fours are impure for you. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be impure until evening. And anyone who carries their carcasses shall wash his clothes and remain impure until evening. They are impure for you. Okay. So I look at notes on, because I'm in the green book, because I forgot Rabbi Nick took his collection. How dare he? His set of, <laughs> of JPS to our commentary. So I usually use his. So I'm with you this morning. Um, so 627, note number 24, carcass. Right? It's not defined. In a later era, the rabbis considered the carcass to be the flesh only and permitted the use of the bones, skin, hair, and teeth oh. in answer to the question we were asking mm -hmm. earlier. The Dead Sea, however, folks, right, um, forbade even those. They were pretty machmir. All right. So the carcass is, makes you, in contact with the carcass, makes you impure, right? Until evening. Until evening. And that's going to go on. Welcome. Um, that's going to go on through from 29, right, uh, through the verses uh, 30s, right, so that uh, all the way uh, down to the ritual that you're going to use. Like, look at 30, uh, 38. If water is put on the seat, so no, go back. 37 talks about Tahor, right? So we're we're talking again, we're now back to Tamei and Tahor, mm -hmm. right? So we've dealt with Sheket, and we've dealt with Tum'ah. So I don't want to avoid Bert's question, um, but I'm not there yet. Um, you, you, can't, you can't do a lot of things when you're Tamei, right? How, how have you heard me translate these before, pure and impure? How have you heard me translate this? Huh? It's odd. You can't walk upon the water and... and no, no, the word, the word tame. You've heard me and tahor. Pure and impure. How have you heard me translate it in a way I like better? Regular and irregular? Regular and irregular. Meaning ritually. Ritually in a state of regularity or... A state of irregularity. That is a better translation than pure and impure. Why? Because when we say impure, what do we tend to think? Dirty. 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 Moral. There's a moral. Judgy. Yeah. We judge. Ethical. Right. 
impure. You have impure thoughts. Mm -hmm. Right? And there's no room. There's no room for conversation. It's just black and white. Well, and this is black and white too. Mm -hmm. Regular and irregular are black and white categories. Ritually, according to Torah. Like we're we're dealing right now with the Torah's worldview. Tameh and Tahor. When you are Tameh, when you are irregular, there's a lot of stuff you can't do. So to us, it it may not seem to matter, but it mattered in the ancient world if you were Tameh because you're, you're, you're taken out of the state of regularity and most things happen in the state of regularity. Mm-hmm. If you can't participate in those things, you have removed your, you've been removed from daily regular life, which is fine, but you don't want it to happen on a Thursday afternoon when you're going about your business mm-hmm. and now you can't touch the car because you're Tame. Mm-hmm. How am I supposed to pick up the groceries? Oh, you can't touch the groceries because you're Tame. Right. You see what I'm saying? Like it, it disrupts. It is a disruptive state. That's fine when you've had a baby. Yes, your life just got seriously disrupted. Fine. But you don't want that to happen by accident in the middle of the week. Right? Okay. So it matters that this makes you tame. So even touching the carcass of such animals makes you tame. So what is the point of this? Even touching it making you tame, what's that going to do? It's going to have you make really sure that none of those animals are around. I'm not going to be a swine farmer. if Okay, I can't eat it, but you might raise stuff you don't eat. But I'm not going to be a swine farmer if I touch a swine and it makes me impure. I'm going to spend a lot of my time in ritual purification processes. <laughs> right? So, so by, by the carcass communicating tum'ah, dysregularity, you're going to make sure you don't go anywhere near these animals. Oh, that's what, they get. what does that do? That makes them aban- abandon them. So yeah, you're not going to deal with them. But what else does that do? It distances you from people who do. If they're putting it on their table, but it makes you tame to even touch it, if you don't know what the Smiths are serving for dinner, you're not going to risk tumah to sit at their table. It is isolating Israelites from non-Israelites. Why would Torah be interested in distancing Israelites from non-Israelites on issues around food? Say, 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 say. Okay, so we, we, what do people do every single day? They need to put food on the table. They need to go to the... <coughs> Local bakery. They need to go to the fruit stand. And they need to go to the butcher. That's a daily occurrence. So if they don't, if Torahs, if if the builders of early Israelite civilization are interested in not having dependency on the butcher down the street that's not Israelite, one way to do it is say, you can't eat what he sells. Mm -hmm. Okay, what, why else might early Israelite society have an interest in separating Israelites from non-Israelites around issues of food? Intermarriage. Because, how, how does that relate to food? Because if, you, if my daughter can't hang out with that cute guy because his family isn't kosher, <laughs> she won't be over there. That's exactly right. That's exactly what it is. Social intercourse happens through food. And what does social intercourse lead to? (laughs) I didn't say it. Sheldon said it. It leads to dancing. (laughs) It's an old one, I know. I'm not as young as I've seen. Okay, so social intercourse leads to intimacy between people and families. 
It was the agenda of early Israelite society because it came out of Canaanite society and not out of Egypt. It came out of Canaanite society. Early Israelite society had to find ways to keep Israelites from eating with Canaanites. Once you became an Israelite and you took on Yahweh as your primary relationship deity-wise, you no longer could eat with Canaanites. Canaanites who worshipped other gods. Because sitting at their table will ultimately lead to the exchange of Christmas presents for your grandchildren, God forbid. It is universal when you're trying to strengthen your identification with an in-group and define that in-group and you're belonging to that in-group, you cut off contact with the out-group as much as possible. But certainly around whether it's economics or really it's around social contact and building social relationships. Um, I'm getting a little technical from um, what I do for a living. Uh, But the fact of the matter is that in the next five years or ten years, we're going to be doing transplants with pig Mm-hmm. My wife is going to have um, um, a, um, valve. a valve replacement, um, and they're going to be using pig yeah. valves and everything like that. Yeah. We start to get, it's going to start to get really um, uh, confused and, 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 and ugly a little bit when uh, we don't do, when, when we rely on um, animals to provide body parts and we're not that far away right so that's a very good point when we just talked about earlier what do these texts have to do with me because here's one of our medical ethical very serious issues right if animals can be used for body parts how far away are we from birthing raising growing animals so I can kill it for its heart valve now that, that now the medical I mean now the ethical discussion becomes is mm-hmm. it okay for me to kill it to eat it but not to use its heart valve yeah, I know. that becomes the ethical right what part of the ethical discussion would an orthodox person say no I'm sorry I won't have the procedure no the answer is unfortunately uh, Rita's here Rita and I have, have worked <laughs> together on some research uh, before so uh, I'm always love to defer to read it. The answer is, I don't know. But what I can tell you is, pikuach nefesh, saving a life, trumps everything. That is not the ethical conversation. It's not about, will you use a pig's heart? That's not what I heard. What I heard is, if we start seeing animals as factories for my body parts, that is the ethical implication that I heard you raising. That's exactly right. Now... I raise it for food, we seem to say that's okay. I can have it born and raised so that I can eat it. Are we okay with it being born and raised and slaughtered for it to be my body parts? Right. That that becomes part of an ethical discussion. I think it's, it's very much an ethical discussion around this sort of thing because you know it, it, it's where is the right line drawn? Sure, because some people will say, what's the difference? If you're killing it for your benefit, what's the difference? Isn't saving a life an even higher value? I don't have to eat meat to survive. I do need a heart valve that functions. And if that's the best option, isn't that even a higher purpose than just eating it when there's lots of kinds of protein I can eat now that I don't have to kill? (laughs) Right? Well, of course. So that, that would be part of it. Right. And if I eat it, are we using all of it? Or if you raise it for heart valve, should then we be utilizing the rest of it for food? Right. It's, in some way. Per this conversation, which it just popped into my brain that is filled with things that are irrelevant to most of the world, you cannot kill an animal to make a Torah scroll. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I would have to think through wow. what I think about 
but it tells me there's already a halachic principle at play that says you can't kill an animal to use it willy-nilly, or just to use its skin, right? Even to make a Torah scroll, which to us is like, well, you know, the holiest of... You can't do that. It's unethical. You can to consume it. Now, which category, right, heart valve falls into, I'm sure there's lots of good halachic, right, arguing about that. Is it the rules of you don't kill it to make something, or is it, you know, if you can kill it to eat it, because that's about... So what bettering you, your life. So what about killing it and using it for the rest of it or something? <laughs> for, for, you have to get it somewhere. It's about the intent, I think. Right? Perfect. I'm all for it. Yes, Rita. But in terms of pikuach nefesh, saving a life, um, in, in Israel, I know the Orthodox won't um, donate any organs because you're supposed to supposed to be buried with mm. all your body parts. Right. Here, right. orthodoxy has has ordained that it is not only permissible, but encouraged to donate organs. Pikuach nefesh trumps going back into the ground the way we got put here. So I don't know what's, why, why it's different in Israel, but orthodoxy here says be an organ donor. Because pikuach nefesh is more important. That's a relative... This is a change over the last 10 to 15 years. Mm. Uh, it wasn't always that way. So the, the good news is, it does not. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is definitely now uh, encouraged. Um, okay, so I want to close this with um, these. When people tell you it is healthier not to eat pork, because in the ancient world, if they didn't cook pork properly, you died of trichinosis. Okay. If you don't cook a cow or a sheep properly, the disease that you get is no prettier than trichinosis, right? It is not healthy to mix meat and dairy because you coat the stomach and then it can't digest the meat. This is all garbage. It is a way that Jews want to defend practices that have no defense other than we don't eat them. Because Torah says so, okay? That is the only reason we don't eat them. It's because Torah says don't eat them. Now, I don't not eat them because Torah says don't eat them. I don't eat them because Torah said that to my ancestors who said it to their children, who said it to their children, and that's been the practice among Jews for thousands of years. And if you remember the story of Hanukkah, how did that whole ugly business get started? They wanted Mattathias to eat a pig. A pig. And he, di- he was going to die rather than mm-hmm. eat the pig. That's why I don't eat pig. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Now, now I know it came from here. Duh, I'm not stupid. Like, I've been doing this stuff for a while. <laughs> but, but, then, but then it comes from here isn't always a good enough answer for me. Right? Um, the fact that so much has been put on Jews not eating certain things and Jews have been tortured and tormented and sometimes murdered with this as the litmus test of how Jewish are you? Are you willing to stay with it till the death or not? That has a lot of power for me. So I, who come to every meal, come to it with a Jewish consciousness, and I don't choose to. I choose not to eat pork. I choose not to eat shellfish. Not because it's bad or wrong or unhealthy for me. I eat lots of stuff, trust me, that's unhealthy for me. Doritos at the top <laughs> of that list. Lots of stuff that's not healthy. This is not about health. This is about making a spiritual and conscious choice every time we sit down to eat. For me, it is a positive act of identifying with the Jewish people's history around eating for me to refrain from eating pork and shellfish. It is a positive act, and it is an act of discipline. Just to say no to something, just because. Just because we say no as Jews. It's a Jewish discipline that I find meaningful because there's not lots of places I'm terribly disciplined. I won't lie to you. I should exercise way more than I do. <laughs> right? I, I'm not disciplined about it. But, but this, I feel, it's so for me, I, I very much like having something around Jew, Judaism and spirituality and consumption. And I say no just as a value of saying no and saying no Jewishly. 
So that so that's one level, right? Is a positive act of Jewish identification that goes all the way back to here. I think the conversation that we really need to be having is not about these at all. It's about where, how, when, and to what degree are we having any conversation around the ethics, the spirituality around consumption? Mm-hmm. Plastic should be trafe. If we really took seriously all the information that we have and filtered it through our moral, ethical sensibilities, plastic Mm -hmm. should be not kosher, period. It's poisoning the planet. It's killing the oceans. We know this. The ratio of plastic to plankton is terrifying. That plastic sits in the sun, it gets broken down by the sun into tiny microparticles that fish think are plankton. And they eat that, and we eat them. It's not going to take long, people, before all of that. And we wonder why cancer rates are through the roof. And I'm not trying to be hysterical here. Like, when people say, God, there's so much more cancer. Are we just better at diagnosing it? Yeah, that, and we're sitting on Scotch Guard everywhere. We're breathing jet fuel, and now we're eating petroleum products. Like, is it any wonder that we're sick? Right? And so... I really believe Jews have a lot more to say than we're saying about consumption and about what we're eating, how we're eating. Farm to table is an ethical movement saying, you know, like, let's not rape the soil anymore, right? And let's not kill ourselves with all these pesticides and everything. Like, it's it's about reclaiming our relationship to the planet, to the creatures on this planet, to other people who live downstream of our fertilizers, and our chemicals, right? Their kids are getting, you know those frogs that are not being born like three sexes? Like it's like, cause it's wrong, it's bad. Like, um, and, and we have we have human beings the control over what happens to this planet. And I feel like our relationship to consumption is is somehow disconnected from our ethical legacy and our feeling of moral obligation and outrage. And I'm ready for us, as progressive Jews in particular, to reclaim this as it's an abomination. Why can't we use that word? Everyone goes, it's such a biblical, horrible word. That's said they were so ignorant. Really? It's an abomination what we're doing to this planet, to creatures, to other populations. It's an abomination. And we should put abominate that on lots of products. Right? Like, we should abominate it. We need to take that verb back. Um, and so I don't think these categories are completely irrelevant to who we are. We should be outraged morally at so much of what's happening, so much of what I myself participate in. And I'm lazy too. I don't know where my clothes are made. But half of that's because they don't want you to know where your clothes are made because they don't want you to know what's made in a sweatshop. Because then you won't buy it. So they make it hard for us. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to like lay all the blame on us, but as consumers, we need to be bringing this stuff forward, right? We've brought a lot of stuff forward and reconstructed it, and I just feel like we're not, we're not doing our Jewish ethical, moral work around the issues of of eating and the issues of of how and what. We consume. So that I'm going to leave you with um, this Shabbat. Tahor versus abomination. What's the difference? So, quickly, the difference is between between how one can engage with sancta, right? So this this shifts back and forth, right? I can be tame, but then I go through rituals and I become tahor. Most of the time, I'm and then sometimes I'm dysregulated and become tame. And sometimes you're supposed to become tame. Menstruation makes you tame. So it's a good thing that we menstruate, so because you want to be fertile, right? So tame is not a bad thing. It's dysregular, right? Um, but then I go back to being tahor. Sheket is permanent, right? And it's not a person. It's not my. It's not a state a human being can be in. It is a category of something that we engage with that is a permanent category of no. Right? Of you can't 
do it. It's just off limits. And there's no reason. That's the other part of Shekhetz. There's no reason for it. And same with Toeva, which is the other word I was looking for here. Toeva also gets translated abomination. Shekhetz is more like disgusting. You shall not eat that. It's disgusting to you. It shall be disgusting to you. If you can legislate. Look, if you can legislate Be'ahavta and you shall love, why not? It shall be disgusting to you. So it's a category that doesn't change. Does that make some sense? Some people want to suggest biblically that part of what defines something as Shekhetz is that the ancient Israelites were obsessed in their worldview with separation. How did we get creation? The waters are separated. The land is separated. The light is separated from the... Everything happens through separation. And if those waters aren't separated, what happens? Right? The flood is what happened, right? The waters... God unseparated the waters. They came together and everything is obliterated, right? The structure of separation is what keeps everything stable. So if something lives in the water but can crawl up on land and live there too, like, that's a non... That's a non-separator. Let's freak out. It's like, ooh, like that... Ooh. Is that, do you think that's behind Kashmir? That, that's what some people want to suggest is behind the early impulses to, to keep it separate. To keep it separate. There, that there are things, right. you, you eat these and you don't eat those. And, what, and a lot of the stuff you don't eat are things that cross over, right? That are, bats are sort of a bird, but sort of, sort of a mammal, right? Like it, that's a, it's a, it's a non-separator. It's a breacher of the. It's a breach of the healthy functional boundary. So that's one. It's one interpretation of how some of these got to be shekets. Um, but the other thing I just want to close my closing close with is um, this is also about homosexuality. Toeva, not shekets, but toeva, abomination. So I want to remind us that it's right up there with eating pork. Right, so when we talk about it says like the Bible says that's an abomination. Well, what did you have for breakfast? Right. You abominated this morning. Right. Why is that one so much bigger? You're right? It's an abomination. Okay, well, guess what? There's a list of about 43 things that are abominations right here. Right? I'm not trying to minimize that it's homophobic. It is. But, but I am trying to say it's not... When people have a sign that say God says it's an abomination, well, did you eat bacon today? <laughs> You're an abomination. You abominated. <laughs> but that doesn't scare anybody, right? You know, like they would be like, okay, but we don't believe that. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> I'm with you on that. <laughs> we, we can decide about this this idea of, of abominating. So, um, so this Shabbat, may we as we save much electricity here today yeah. at KI. <laughs> Um, so may we uh, take into this Shabbat and coming week an awareness around how it is we interact with our appetites and with um, all that we consume. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.